Our scripture reading today is from John 4, verses 43 to 54. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, this is on page 889. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome. We are going to wrap up this chapter this morning, and then we'll we'll move on to chapter 5 next week. But here's the setting of this story. Jesus travels back to Galilee. Cana, to be more exact, that same place in chapter 2 where he made the water into wine at at the wedding, the first miracle. And these Galileans, they welcome Jesus back as he's coming. And they hear of what Jesus did in Jerusalem. Many saw what Jesus did in Jerusalem during that Passover time. And so from this point, the story then moves its focus to this official from Capernaum whose son uh, was ill. Now, many Uh, commentaries, if you are going to read them, they will say that this is someone who worked for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a ruler of Galilee. He was known as King Herod in Mark chapter 6. He's one of the tetrarchs where they divide the kingdom in four parts. He's one of the kings in one of those four parts. Well, it's this official son who is ill to the point of death. And for those of you with children, this is literally your worst nightmare, isn't it? This scenario a deathly ill child, and where you're willing to just do anything. You're willing to do anything to save this kid. It had me thinking back to when my second child was born. When she was born, she wasn't breathing right away. And so the nurse practitioner in that Kaiser delivery room, they, they were trying to get her to breathe, and she wouldn't, and so they, they called this code blue. And the code blue happened, and I can see everyone just frantically in that delivery room just kind of moving all over the place and I saw people running in the halls and trying to get equipment in the room and into that delivery room and, and I, I just stood there. I didn't know what to do and all I could do was pray and my heart just sank and I just continued to pray and I don't know, that minute or so just felt like an eternity and it was such a relief to hear her cry. I was just like, oh my God, like that just took like three years out of my life. I was, I was so stressed. I was like, I felt so horrible. And that, that desperation I had during that time, 
and she was only a few seconds old. And I was willing to do anything for her that if someone came up to me and says, like, trade lives, I wouldn't even think about it. Done. Like, done. Just a few seconds old. I don't even know this kid really, but it's done. I, I would do it. And here's this parent with this son who has been with them. We're not told how old he is, but it's more than seconds. And you would imagine what a parent would do when they've had this child for these years. And this Roman official who has money, has power, has influence, I'm sure had tried everything within his network and his connections and his power and his money to have this kid be healed. He's done everything he possibly could to get his son better. And at this point, he's even willing to travel eight to nine miles from Capernaum to Cana of Galilee to go see this hippie Jewish guy that he's heard of heals people. Like he's that desperate. And you keep in mind that this distance, no, it's actually longer than that. It's, it's about 16 miles, 16 miles from Cana to Galilee. So it's about an eight to nine hour walk. Right, I just kind of programmed the distance in my phone. It takes about eight to nine hours for a normal person to walk that distance. Well, this guy's not walking by himself. He has this entourage, and he's probably not walking himself. He's probably either being carried, or he's on a chariot, or he's on something. So needless to say, it's probably slower than that because it's with this group. And so he travels from Capernaum to Cana just so that he can ask Jesus, can you come back with me to Capernaum? Because my son is sick. And, and so this additional eight to nine hours, and so you're talking about a 16 to 18 hour journey to like get Jesus and come back. Now sometimes this story gets confused with the centurion's servant uh, in Matthew chapter eight, Luke seven, and this is a, a different story. This is a separate story of faith. Now we all exercise faith, don't we? Some of you drove here. You exercised faith. You didn't know if your car would start. Uh, some of you have cars. My car's a 98. I don't have questions. It's a, it'll start, though. It's a Honda Accord, so I'm good. But, <laughs> but some of you have faith every time you go out to lunch after service, right, that that, that food won't get you sick. And fortunately, every local joint that I've been to here has not gotten me sick, and I've probably been to everything within a two-square-mile radius around here. So you're, you're good. But we all exercise that sort of faith, right? We all exercise faith. And these are very simple faiths, and the way that we are able to exercise them so easily is because we've based our trust on an object or a person. We know that this car has started for us for over 20 years, okay, we're good. We know that I've eaten at this restaurant for 20 years, I've never gotten sick here, it's always been good, you're, you're fine, right? So you, you base it on something, and so it's not a blind faith, because you've experienced a trustworthiness to those objects or those people. Faith is not blind, it's, it's worthy of trust depending on the object of our faith or who we place that trust in or that faith in. So there are people who think Christians are just crazy for placing their trust in Jesus, that we're illogical or we're unreasonable, that we are thinking and believing in these improbable things 
and they're willing to bet their life, their everlasting life, that we're wrong. And that our faith doesn't have a substance to it, like a car or a person who cooks for you or whatever. Now, I don't place blame on them entirely being a non-believer because non-believers haven't always had the best witnesses to look at in terms of Christians. They've seen so much hypocrisy and it hasn't always been a credible testimony to them to who a Christian is. And they might see a Christian who goes to church on Sundays and says they go to church on Sunday, but then all those other days that they're with them, that Monday through Saturday, they're, they're really no different than anybody else. They live like everybody else. And the only difference is that they go to this place that they call church for one to two hours a day, but then everything else is the same. And that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith requires obedience. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you're still wrapped up in sin it's very difficult to believe that you truly have a genuine faith in Jesus. Because a faith in Jesus is a powerfully transformative experience. It has a powerful influence in a believer's life. And it's not to say that you won't sin. Obviously, we all do. But there should be a notable change from who you once were to who you have become where this old has become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this faith that we have is a, a personal one. It's in someone, Jesus Christ. And there are reasons for him to be trusted. It is logical for us to trust in him. And it's based off of the testimony of many. We read it. Throughout the scriptures, we can see it in people's lives. We are seeing the trustworthiness of a person. And this father, based on his faith, on what he heard about Jesus and what he did in Jerusalem and what he has been doing, he doesn't have a blind faith. He's heard testimony. He's heard these things. He's heard some credibility. And so he had the faith based on, off of what he heard as credible, and it causes him to act in faith. It had him travel well over eight hours, one way to ask Jesus to come back with him to Capernaum, another eight-hour trip. And here's something important about faith in Jesus Christ, that it can't be acted upon without humility. Because you think about it, this, this is an official of Rome who traveled to Galilee to ask Jesus in person when he could have easily just said, hey, you guys, hurry up and go over there and ask him and, and get him and come back. But he doesn't do that. He, he's going himself, and he could have demanded Jesus to go back with him because of his influence, because of his power, and say, like, you have no choice, grab this guy, let's go. No, he, he knew Jesus to be just this carpenter son of ill repute. And here's this powerful official, Roman official, making this trek to beg a Jewish peasant to come back and heal his son. 
these are the things that happen, and these are the things non-believers view as impossible. Like, how can that be? Like, this powerful, wealthy, influential guy taking this trip over eight hours to beg this Jewish peasant to come back with him to heal his son. Like, these are improbable stories. And we read this story today, and we don't think that much about it. We just, like, take it at face value. We read it like it's normal. But really, it's not. You place yourself in that time, this is an improbable thing. Like this is a very wealthy, influential guy. Who would ever do that? Would we ever do that? And you imagine what this official's circles would have thought of him. All his Roman friends and the people that he had around him and, and the people that worked for him, they must have thought, this guy's out of his mind. Why would he even think about doing that? And as they're getting ready and they're packing all their things to get ready to go over to Galilee, the guys that are on this kind of march must have been thinking, like, he's crazy. Like, we're, we're spending all of this money, all this time, all of these resources to go talk to this Jewish peasant guy in hopes that he's going to come back with us. Who knows if he will or not anyway. And yet we're going to spend all of this time and money to do this. The official doesn't care. The official has a son who is dying. I can care less how much money I spend, how much time it takes you. I don't care what I look like. I don't care if people think I'm a fool. We're going. And so they're off. And I think this is a problem that Christians in the Bay Area are afraid of. I think there are a lot of Bay Area Christians who do care what non-believers think, who do care what non-believers say about them where those Christians want to fit in where they're at, whether it be at work or school or their social circles, communities, neighborhoods, whatever it be, I don't want to look the fool. I don't want to exercise such great faith that makes me look kind of ridiculous. Where Christians think they can do whatever they want to do and they just live like everybody else around them and that Jesus needs to adapt to us rather than exercising obedience in the Christian faith as it calls us to. Now, genuine faith in Christ, it requires a humility in asking God, not demanding, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we see this official going to ask. He's not demanding that Jesus do this because I think we must realize that we can't ever deliver ourselves from the curse and the stain of sin. And so much of what we value is just vanity, and it doesn't look at the cross. And we just keep looking at the things that we can do for ourselves, and we've become this self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent people. Now you look at what Jesus said in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That we're so preoccupied by the world's approach to things that we have to see it to believe it. And we have that kind of saying, right? People are more interested in seeing what God can do rather than, than being interested in their relationship with God. And if this official is from Herod, he's probably very much like Herod. Because you look at what Herod was interested in, Luke chapter 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad... For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. 
signs. Like, what can God do rather than, oh, he's here and I, I really want to get to know him and I want a relationship with him. And the official proves to Jesus that he's not like that. I'm not like Herod. And he answers this in John chapter 4, verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. And so Jesus tests this faith. Jesus tests this humility of his faith, and he tests this persistence of his faith. And he saw this earnestness from the official's faith, and he saw that it wasn't just about seeing what Jesus can do. Is our faith in Jesus humble, persistent, earnest? How do we come in faith to Christ? It's humility. It's persistence, it's earnestness, clinging on to Jesus for deliverance, knowing that we are not self-sufficient. It's how the blind beggar approached Jesus in Jericho. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. It's humble. He's persistent. He's earnest. And now he can see. Can you see? Can you see your need for Jesus Christ? That only Jesus can deliver you from sin. You'll only be able to see by the work of the Holy Spirit. That no one can make you see your sin, convict you of your sin. No person can. Only the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit can have you see the rebellion you have toward God. The official said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Sometimes we have these preconceived ideas of how things are to happen, right? We plan them out, and this is how it should be. And so the official thinks, you know, I'm going to make my way over there. I'm going to ask him to come, and then he's going to travel with me and go back, and then he's going to heal my son. But what does Jesus say to him? Verse 50, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So here's this Roman official, travels over eight hours with his entourage, using up all these resources so that they can meet up with Jesus while his community thinks he's crazy. And he goes before Jesus, pleading for his son's life. Jesus confronts him about needing to see signs and wonders. The official asks Jesus to come with him to Capernaum to heal his son. And it proves Jesus' point about not believing unless he sees signs and wonder. Because Jesus is pointing out his belief and just saying, like, go. You don't need me to be there and actually do something or touch your son or anything. There, there's no signs or wonders to experience yet. Let's see if you really believe that. Let's see if you really believe that you don't need signs and wonders. You just believe. Go. Let's see what happens. Believe. Go. Your son will live. So he's not going to see what happens for at least another eight hours. He's just supposed to go and believe this. And you can imagine, like, what are you talking about? 
Like me in that delivery room, if someone were just to come up to me and like, believe, she's not breathing, she's right there. And if they were to come say, come back in eight hours, no, like I wanna see that now. And yet here's this guy's like, okay, believe, go, you'll find out. Man, I mean, how would you feel as a parent all this anticipation and knowing like your, your kid's going to die, that he was challenged to believe. He had no choice but to believe. You know, when my kids were younger, we had this pediatrician for them. And every time we went to see her, she always had the same answer. She always had the same routine. It was so frustrating to go see her. It just became this joke between my wife and me. Every time we went in, she'd always tell us, oh, uh, give iron supplements, and for everything, any skin ailment, whatever, put Aquaphor on it. That's what it was all the time, no matter what we brought the kids in for. Iron and Aquaphor, that's what it was. I think they're having a hearing issue. Oh, iron, and uh, rub some Aquaphor on it, I don't know. And it's like skin issues, um, whatever it would be, stomach issues, joint pain, uh, whatever we brought our kids in for, iron, aquaphor, all the time. So it then became a joke in our house, right, that the, the, the kids come home to us with, with a health issue, just iron, rub some aquaphor on it, and you'll be fine. And, and we'd always come out of these appointments wondering, why did we go? Like, why did we pay that copay? And why are we paying these high premiums on insurance? We already know what she's going to say. It's iron and aquaphor, and that's all it is. And every time we'd come out, out of there, we'd be like, is that it? Is that all this lady has to offer us? And I just wonder if this is the kind of thought the official had. That it? That's all you have for me, iron and aquaphor. I mean, it wasn't like he wrote down instructions to say like, hey, place your kid like this or say these things or, or take a piece of my cloth and put it on his forehead. Like, like it wasn't anything like that. It's just go. What? It's just like an iron and aquaphor moment. Not given anything. No prescription because I could have got that over the counter, right? That there's nothing on what to do. Just believe. Go. Just believe. But the thing is, he did it. And Jesus opened up this huge opportunity for this official to, to level up on his faith. He opened it wide open. Given the opportunity to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. To simply believe Jesus and what he says. And this is so challenging for us because for us, in our science-heavy society, we got to see it to believe it. we got to see it. we got to see the data. We, we can't just believe. Where's the data? And so we have this dependence on sight. We have to see it. We have to record it. We have to have time pass by for it to prove to us. And all of these superstitious things that we see people do because of their dependence on sight, even though they don't do anything. Even today, 
We, we do superstitious things, right? Athletes especially, like they rub something or they have to wear an old pair of underwear that they don't wash until the playoffs are over, or whatever it is, right? In almost every culture, there's this superstitious thing that happens at funerals that has been brought over generation over generation. And it's because people need to see. They need to see, like in, in, in Chinese culture, the, the burning of fake money symbolizing that money going with them elsewhere or burning of like servants or burning of cars or burning of something to like see that oh that's going to go with them over there that, that they need to see there's no superstitious thing that needs to be done or seen with Jesus go believe I'm not giving you a piece of my garment I'm not giving you whatever or the sand or whatever like what just you, you go you go your son will live Simple faith, belief. Now you imagine his journey home, and you imagine the people in his entourage. They all go away thinking, Jesus is going to be with us, and we're going to go, okay, we have a mission. Our mission is being accomplished. We got him. We're leaving. But now they're wondering, like, can you imagine the letdown of this group? We came all this way, and that's all he said to us. Go. Believe. Your son will be healed. Like, that's it? And so some of them wondering, like, man, at least we get paid for this trip. Like, uh, we, we did it, but that's all he said to the official. That's all he said to our master. It's like, go. Like, that's messed up. Nothing to show for this trip. But that's what the official did. Now, it doesn't seem like they left in a hurry or a panic because it doesn't show until the next day that he gets home. So it's not like they left right away during that time, like, oh, we got to get home. I got to see if my son is healed. Look at chapter 4, verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So his servants who stayed in Capernaum were the ones who went to the official. They're the ones that are eager and that, are, that seem to want to get the news to him about what had happened. And John didn't write that the official hurried back or anything like that. And, and this traveling group probably expected that by the time that they got home, that boy's going to be dead. Maybe everyone except the official. But everyone along in that group was like, man, did you see that kid before we left? Like, he was knocking on death's door. But not the official. He asked his servants who remained in Capernaum in John 4:52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So you see how long this journey was? This is yesterday, 1 p.m., seventh hour, 1 p.m. And so this official probably decided when Jesus said this, we can't go home now because it takes too long. We'll be traveling in the night, and it's too dangerous for us to travel in the night. So we're going to spend the night here in Cana of Galilee. We'll leave first thing in the morning, and then we'll, we'll go. So imagine that. For us, we don't think about things like this because like, if you miss a flight from L.A. to the Bay Area, I'll just drive five and a half hours. Well, I'll just drive. I'll just go. When all those Southwest flights were canceled, like a lot of people did that sort of thing, right? But most likely you're not going to get robbed or anything like that driving you're pretty safe but during this time really dangerous you're, you're not going to travel in the evening times on these roads you can't speed away you can't do things so we're going to spend the night 
And you can imagine all night long this guy. Could he even sleep? Like, man, my kid, I, I, I can't call. I can't do anything. I can't text. I just have to wait. I just have to wait. And what he's thinking that night, what he's praying about or whatever he's thinking. And then first thing in the morning, we're out of here. And then they start going. In verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Official believed, obviously, and and so did all his household. He had to share about what Jesus did. He couldn't contain it. Now, I'm sure there were many doubters in the household. People who, who may have thought it was just like a coincidence or, or there's, there's something else and they had to explain it. But the official knew it was at that time that Jesus said it. And so I can imagine all the people that traveled with him, how their faith just like, what? And they believed right away. I'm thinking it's probably more of the people that remained at Capernaum thinking like, oh, that can't be. Come on, give me a break. You know, when you genuinely believe in Jesus... You just have to tell others because of what he did for you or what he did for a loved one, right? Like healing your your son when he's on his deathbed, you have to share. When you genuinely believe in Jesus, you have to tell other people. You, You can't contain it. Your belief has done something miraculous in your life and you just have to share it. Let me close with a section of Acts chapter four. Starting in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you that, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name." So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Jesus and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Genuine faith begins with humility. A humility to ask and and persist toward Jesus in earnest, and then that faith can't help but be shared because of what you've experienced in Jesus. You can't help it. What you've seen, what you've heard, what has been experienced, 
Where is your faith in Jesus today? And are you sharing it with others? Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe? Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this example of this Roman official exercising faith. And so many times in in our own society, we have this reliance on sight. When in actuality and in practice, that's not really always the case, that our faith is built on an object or a person that we've been able to trust in. And so for millions, there is a trust in Jesus because we know your word to be true. We've experienced in our own lives, we've heard the testimony of our contemporaries. Lord, would you give us a boldness like Peter and John to share about you? Those things that you've already done in our life, those miraculous things that you've already done that that we can share that can be testimonies of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Anyone need communion elements, just uh, hold up your hand and we can get that to you. We'll start with the wafer on top, symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. The only way for our sin to be removed from us, that stain to be removed from us, we take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us in Jesus' name. God, thank you for these simple elements reminding us of what you have done, what we couldn't do for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that as we do this weekly here and and regularly, that it continues to remind us of our connection with you, that those inconsistencies and those hypocrisies that people see, I pray that we're more and more in alignment with what you call us to be in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.